This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, it's Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Mule Deer. Yeah, Steve, it's been a little bit, but uh, we had this kind of small event, you know, about a month ago <laughs> that, <laughs> that had us all working a little bit of overtime, so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to do uh, Talking Mule Deer podcast interviews, but that's what we're here to talk about today, actually, is the success of the 2022 Western Hunting and Conservation Expo and kind of lead us into the coming year of what we've got going on on the board. So I'll allow you to introduce our uh, illustrious guests if you would like. All right. And I think this is the first time, Jody, we've had back to back the same guest on two episodes in five years. So it, uh, it, it but is. we made a special, you know, he, he's special enough that we did that for. So we have our boss, uh, Joel Peterson, who's the president and CEO joining us. Uh, welcome, Joel. How are you today? Glad to be back with you. Yeah. I was going to say, we had a lot of stuff that we weren't able to cover because it was we knew the things prior to Expo, but uh, we weren't able to roll them out. But our other guest today is also J.J. Hinton, who is our outreach coordinator for the Mule Deer Foundation as well, because he is going to be able to talk about how some of the work that he's been doing and, and the organization as a whole has been go, growing and going on social media and our website. J.J., thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks. I appreciate being on this side of the mic instead of just on the back side of the mic doing the editing for you guys. So. <laughs> well, we appreciate you for doing that for sure. So, Joel, how, how'd Expo go? Yeah, we had a great Expo. There was a tremendous amount of excitement from the crowd there uh, after basically taking a two-year break from the last time we had done it. So, we ended up with a little over 46,000 people that walked through the door and enjoyed our evening events, enjoyed the show floor, and uh, opened their wallets and spent a heck of a lot of money with us as well. So overall, it was a great success. Well, being your first expo, you have really nothing to compare it to. You know, Jody and I have been there for quite some time, and JJ, you've been to a bunch of other ones. I, I was really surprised at the turnout. And uh you know, we had a new booth design this year and uh, got a lot of great positive feedback on that, too. So uh, I think it went over really well. And, and as you said, you know, we set some records on some of the tag auctions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? We did. Uh, you know, one of the big things that we do at the expo uh, during our evening events, as well as on Friday afternoon, is we auction off a lot of the big game tags, the governor's tags, commissioner's tags statewide deer tags, elk tags, etc. And this was a banner year in that regard. We had uh, 12 of those tags that set records uh, for the most that we've ever raised off of those. We had three more that tied previous records. Uh, and it was just a great opportunity for people to invest in conservation because of those tags, on average, about 90% of that goes back to the state agencies and goes right back on the ground to help conservation of wildlife. And in many cases, specifically the species that those tags are for. I would say one of the highlights was the Arizona statewide mule deer tag, which sold for $400,000. The Antelope Island, Utah tag sold for 310,000. We had several others that were up in that neighborhood as well. And Joel, you mentioned both of those tags, correct me if I'm mistaken, but 
100% of the proceeds go back to Arizona and to the state park in for the Antelope Island tag. So it's not, you know, MDF, all we're doing is brokering the sale. Um, all of that money is going back on the ground for great conservation activities and in, in those in many other areas. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think that's, that's a key point. It's something that we're really proud of. And it's something that I think is often missed. People see that we're selling these at our auctions uh, here at the expo and thinking that all of that money is coming back to MDF. In fact, it's not. As you said, Steve, it's going right back on the ground to conservation for those species in Arizona, in Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Montana, you name it. Those states that we get the tags from, as you said, we act as the broker uh, to raise money for conservation in those states. Well, we've also stepped up our game to then make sure that 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 conservation money is used appropriately. I know we have seats on some of the committees that decide where that money goes, but we also work with our partners in those state agencies and other partners to help fund projects we feel are best for mule deer and other wildlife. That's right. We do have that venue to to help the states decide on the projects that will be the most beneficial. We've also worked it into our planning for the year when we know that that money is out there. We try to bring good projects to the table that will hopefully compete well for the funds that we've helped to raise so that we can put good work for mule deer on the ground and, and make sure that we're maximizing the return off of that investment. Now, JJ, I stepped on you a little bit. You were going to weigh in on this. Oh, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, on my side, so, you know, so I manage a lot of the social media accounts for, for MDF and, you know, and Hunt Expo as well. And we see, you know, a lot of folks that just don't have a clear understanding of, you know, where those proceeds go and how we spend them. And, and most folks don't realize that the vast amount of that money goes right back onto the ground. And and as an organization now, we've got an even bigger voice with our cooperative biologists in, in, in many of these states where we have a much larger voice of, you know, how that money is actually being spent and how it's actually going to affect mule deer at the end of the day. And I just wanted to make sure we spent a, a second chatting about that. Well, for sure. Cause one of the other things that we did at Expo, uh, well, this was in the run up to Expo. We, ac- we pulled together a much more comprehensive list of the conservation projects um, that were funded either through large grants, some of these tag dollars. So for instance, in Arizona, that goes through the Habitat Partnership Committee. So some of those funding projects that came out on the ground, the Utah Watershed Restoration Initiative, MDF has a role in that either to help uh, direct some of the the spending, or we also have a role doing in-kind work uh, with volunteers, or we have a habitat partnership coordinator in a certain state where we can arrange uh, working with the State Fish and Wildlife Agency or national uh, on a national forest, U.S. Forest Service, to, to be able to implement that. And so without stepping on the toes of the, uh, the big boss, I'm going to let him give those mega numbers because it was kind of impressive when we finally pulled that all together. Yeah, Jody, you know, that was one of the things that was really exciting uh, being my first expo and being able to be up on stage on Friday night at conservation night and announce the work that we had done over the last two years during the heart of the pandemic. And it's really exciting when you take the time and you look at those numbers and you learn that over the course of those two years, the Mule Deer Foundation raised and spent just shy of $9.9 million. 
we were able to match that with another 35.8 million for a total spend, if you will, of over $45 million that we put on the ground for conservation uh, to impact habitats for fencing, uh, removal and modification uh, in 20 and 21. And to put a finer point on that, we did just shy of 265,000 acres of habitat improvement over the course of those two years. And we removed or modified 115 miles of fence to help make it easier for uh, animals, mule deer, pronghorn, antelope primarily to move across the landscape to get to the habitat that they need. So great, great effort by our team, by the MDF team, as well as all of our partners to really make a difference for mule deer out there on the landscape. Well, and those are big numbers are big numbers, and you can you can quote you know two hundred sixty five thousand acres. But Steve, you are intimately involved in a lot of the decisions on a lot of those projects. Give us a give us an example of some of those larger habitat restoration projects, and and what we did, and why that's beneficial for mule deer and black tailed deer. So we had we had a couple that really stick out. Um, the first one would be the work we did in Wyoming. Uh, with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant on migration corridors that we got a couple of years ago. Uh, the grant was for about $913,000 matched one-to-one. So we put about $1.9 million on the ground. Uh, in doing that, we, we treated uh, over 20,000 acres of rangelands for noxious weeds, mostly cheatgrass and medusa head. Uh, there were a few others, but really uh, there was two things trying to really stop the infestation that's happened where we've had fire and other disturbances. But on the flip side, there was a lot of preventative measures, meaning we were going into rangelands, particularly sagebrush rangelands, and treating the small amount of, of cheatgrass that was there to prevent the explosion that comes shortly thereafter once it gets established. So working with the Wyoming Game and Fish and their partners, uh, there that was done um, working at scale being able to do tens of thousands of acres brought that price down. We tagged on to what other agencies were doing at the same times. And we did not collect that information, by the way. So our 20,000 acres is what our efforts funded, but there was probably equal or more amount done with other partners that we work at in the same area. So it really, you know, it works hand in hand. Uh, we did 56 and a half miles of fencing where we went into known migration corridors that have been identified by the Wyoming Migration Initiative through collared deer and then modeled by uh, the game and fish to show where the most important areas in those migration corridors are. And we worked to modify fences. In some cases, we removed them. In some cases, we made them better by making them wildlife friendly. And in some places, we did things like putting a solid top rail uh, in areas with high snow loads so that over the course of the winter, you don't have to go back year after year after year to fix that top wire. But also without having that top wire exposed, it reduces your risk of feet entanglement as animals go over top of it. Through all of it, we try to push a smooth bottom wire high enough that pronghorn can get underneath it. And also we, we, we also took in access to humans, uh, better, better cattle guards, um, putting them in so that the roads, you know, don't get washed out, but then also access gates, gates that are easier to open, easier to close, ones that humans can go through, 
signs on them saying, please keep the gate closed, you know, makes it all easier to manage. That was real exciting. Um, and so there was a lot of, and then there was a bunch of Aspen habitat work done where we went into Aspen stands and removed uh, conifer encroachment, whether it be white fir or Douglas fir or other things, things that will prevent that, um, that Aspen stand from perpetuating and, and being shaded out and creating a system that's more prone to fire that would be stand replacing. That's real exciting. And, and Aspen habitats outside of riparian habitats are usually the second most productive habitats for big game and Western wildlife um, out there. And, and Wyoming fits that bill. Uh, in, in California, we had a couple projects where we did four to 5,000 acres of shrub mastication, uh, whether it be manzanita, whether it be buckbrush, um, or thinning out young, younger trees to open up the canopy so that light can hit the forest floor, create more vegetation that wildlife, in, including deer, can eat. Um, and then in Idaho, we, ha we have, uh, you know, we have a, a great employee there, Jesse Shallow, who has been leading the effort statewide on their uh, SO3362 implementation. And we did three planting projects of about, uh, I think it was 70 or seven or 8,000 acres, just under 200,000 plants got put in the ground. We did another 20,000 acres of, of treatments for uh say, or cheatgrass on, on, in rangelands. And we did a whole bunch of other things that set up the future, including fixing funnel fences where deer are funneled to crossings. And also we, we are part of the Survey Day Peak um, wildlife overpass. It's going to be outside of Boise, which will be, it's the largest winter range for deer and elk in, in the state. And the state is leading an effort to put an overpass over a highway that kills hundreds of deer every year. Those are those are just a couple of the highlights. I could go on and on and on, but I know you don't want me to. So. Nope. And for partly because we need to hear from our supporters here uh, before we get into our next thing. But the other part of that is that we did as part of this project, we did parse that information out by state. So state regional directors have um, statewide descriptions of all the projects that were funded that we, we talk about in this. So that has been shared out on social media and, and JJ, we can talk about that a little bit later, uh, but, but we don't need to spend a whole lot more time on the specifics of projects because that information is out there. We're, we're making sure that people see what we're doing. Let's take a moment to hear from our supporters. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about something else that was new and unique with the, uh, the, the expo this year. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property, in the Western US, our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, Go to the Supporting Partners page on MuleDeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. 
To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, folks, when we uh, left, I was teasing up that we had something new and unique that happened at Expo, and a whole bunch of stuff was, was great. Were all those, was that all those big hats I saw walking around, Jody? Um, those are muley antlers, and that's not No, no, one. not those. Those ones on Friday afternoon or whatever it was. The, they looked like Kentucky Derby hats. <laughs> oh, no, no. The ladies event is not new and it's not unique, but it is fantastic. And they were beautiful hats. And uh, and as always, the ladies luncheon did raise a lot of money. But also during the day on Friday was another event that we had going on, which was was new. And this was an idea that we had started uh, under miles, but COVID got in the way of doing it was a, a mule deer summit. Uh, the first of its kind. We had, we have never hosted a mule deer summit, and we were able to get that off the ground. And under Joel's leadership, host that during the Friday uh, with a morning session, and then an invite only afternoon session with state fish and wildlife agency directors, top leadership in the Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture, U.S. federal agency. So it was a pretty big deal. So Joel, Steve, I know this is something that you guys had been kicking around. I helped you pull it together. But why don't you tell me, Joel, what your vision for the Mule Deer Summit was? Well, this was, Jody, as you said, this was an idea that had been started before COVID and before my time. And I guess I would just say that I really embraced the idea that you and Steve had been talking about, because I think it's important that Mule Deer Foundation being the only conservation dedicated to mule deer and black-tailed deer conservation, uh, take a lead in that. And this time coming off of COVID uh, with new leadership at the Mule Deer Foundation seemed like a good time to not only raise awareness from the public or to the public about the issues that mule deer face uh, and about the opportunities that are before us to do a better job of managing for the conservation of mule deer, but also to bring a number of our key partners together and have a frank discussion about the future of mule deer conservation, the role that the Mule Deer Foundation can play, and how we broaden the partnerships that we have between Mule Deer Foundation, state and federal agencies, private landowners, tribal lands, and how we can also help to facilitate the partnership uh, between the state agencies and the federal agencies and the other players out there. So kudos to Steve for having the thought for a long time and, and really pulling it off. Well, and you know, Jody, when our initial planning was a two and a half day event, um, we pared this down to a one day event and uh, the amount of information, pertinent information that we were able to both convey during the public session and discuss with leadership um, was impressive. And, you know, some of the things we highlighted, uh, we talked about the SO3362 migration efforts and how the states have been successful on that and what that's led to. And I think that's like $18 million has hit the ground because of that. And states have learned a lot working with uh, the Department of Interior on how to better coordinate across federal and state boundaries and go into those areas that we know animals are using for migration and movement areas. Well, and I think it was important because uh, uh, the Deputy Secretary uh, Tommy Bodro spoke uh, both at our session and the evening, and he's this administration is still committed to that to Secretarial Order three three six two, and and I know some people have been wondering whether it was going to continue on, and it's clear to me that they are very committed, they're very engaged on this. 
may have a, a, a few differences on how we're going, but but it, I'm hearing everything I'm hearing is that that's not the case. That they believe that this has been super ex- uh, effective. That the states, that partnership between the federal agencies, the state agencies, and the NGOs has made a huge difference. And why mess up something that's been such a success? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at it like a surfer, they're going to stay on that wave. They're not going to go searching for another one, which I think is wise on their part. And and we, you know, as you know, we've started our migration initiative based on the order, which was signed at Expo in 2018. So um, some of the other issues that we talked about, we talked about CWD uh, actually had a a different perspective um, on how CWD can affect uh, not just the management of mule deer, but also the, the social aspect, the hunting, the, the use, how herd diameter, dynamics will change and really how the disease and veterinarian side of things is really trying to deal with the management social side of things. And, you know, we hear doom and gloom. Um, We're not real sure on some things, but uh, it was really good information here, a little bit different. We talked about, you know, uh, what's going to be two chapters in the upcoming mule deer book that we're working on with with partners, Um, you know, how humans affect mule deer, what are the impacts, you know, from recreation to habitat loss to disturbance? Um, and, and what can we do about it? You know, and, and so, as we know, all impacts are not created equal, all mitigation is not created equal. But you know, one of the things that came out of that is, in the biology world, we hear all the time, avoidance is your best mitigation. And, and it's, you know, we reaffirm that when we evaluate that every time. Um, you know, we started the, the summit off with Ike Eastman, who, you know, everyone should know the Eastman name and what they've done for mule deer, you know, really telling the crowd that we cannot wait any longer to address these things. And based on their observation of deer over the past oh, 40, 50 years, uh, we're, we're at a critical point. But, you know, Joel has said this before. Um, we have seen the stemming of the decline. The curve has flattened out. And we're at a critical point or an inflection point for us to see our efforts make a more positive difference and get that that trend line going back up. And it's going to take all of us. It's going to take more strategic approach to the things we do and bigger partnerships and working at scale and more funding. Um, And then finally, you know, the challenges that come with all of that. You know, how hard is it to work across administrative boundaries, agencies, agencies? things where we have drought, wildfire, disease running that, that can't be controlled. And, you know, what can we do about it? You know, we, we've talked often about identifying those priority herds and those priority landscapes that we want to work in with our partners where we can do the most help and be effective. And, and that was all part of it. So, and that really came out in, in the private session. You know, we had a very frank discussion. How can we help? Where can we do better? Um, and where can we be more effective given some of the things we know that are coming down the pipe with, you know, infrastructure, bill money, uh, more collaboration being promoted, the feds and the states working better together and the growth of the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, we have seen growth. We will continue to see growth and we will continue to have these discussions on where to be most effective. Joel, tell me what your, uh, what was the biggest takeaway you had from that day? I'd say the biggest takeaway I had from the Mule Deer Summit was uh, the recognition that that now is the time that we really need to focus on this and do stuff. Um, 
thinking about the way we've done work, we being the Mule Deer Foundation in particular, but also in partnership with our state and federal agencies, uh, is not going to be enough to move the needle like we need to in the future. Uh, We spent a good bit of time in that afternoon session talking about the opportunities that are before us with all of the conservation funding that is headed in the direction of the states and the NGOs and the federal agencies uh, through the infrastructure bill, through the appropriations process and everything else. And so a lot of the tools are there. We just have to figure out how we best work together to implement that money uh, in a manner that, as I said several times during the expo, allows us to do the right work in the right place at the right scale to truly make a difference on the landscape over the long term. Yeah, so you both have mentioned the infrastructure bill, and and we're going to have to take a break again here, but I want to just um, put a little bit of background on that so people understand what we're talking about. Obviously, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, was passed by Congress last year, and I know a lot of people know about it as roads and highways and things like that, the gray infrastructure, and, and that is certainly a huge part of it. And in fact, actually, there was a plus and a positive for the corridor wildlife movement world in that because for the first time ever, it included a $350 million uh, pilot project, pilot program, I should say, to try to get uh, wildlife crossings, overpasses and underpasses. Um, That has not been a dedicated budget area. So that's a big deal. But importantly, it also, um, this infrastructure bill included a lot of what we're calling natural infrastructure, which is making Uh, some efforts on the landscape in natural areas to uh, boost resilience, to improve our, uh, you know, reduce wildfire risk, improve in coastal areas, improve uh, flooding issues, things like that. And part of that was a fairly substantial chunk for forest management, uh, rangeland restoration, things like that. So that's, that's the money that you all are talking about. Do you have any more feedback or information about that? Or is that a good enough background? I would just add that that it's at a scale and a and a, a track, meaning in time, that we haven't seen before. And so, um, you know, working at the scale they want to see worked at, and with the ultimate goals, and how quickly they want to get stuff out the door, it would be the other thing, Jody. Yep. Yeah. So, so again, there's, there's a, a point in time, there's, there's going to be money flowing, there's going to be opportunity. And the great part is MDF, along with a lot of our partners are scaled up to be able to help on some of these projects and, and get these on the ground. And again, they, they may be good for forest health from a wildfire prevention, but they also do great things for mule deer, black-tailed deer, and, and other wildlife in these systems. And uh, cheatgrass, we mentioned that, uh, obviously that's a, that's a fire issue as well in the rangeland area. So, so, some of these these treatments manage that as well. We do have to take a break. When we come back, uh, JJ, we're going to shift over to you a little bit, uh, but we're going to tease into it with a little project that was was uh, I don't I don't want to say near and dear to my heart, but certainly took a heck of a lot of my time leading up to Expo. So, we'll be back in a minute. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. Elk, sheep, big old muleys. 
not a problem for the 27 Nosler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. All right, before the break, we were talking a little bit, we were talking a lot about the uh, the Mule Deer Summit, about the infrastructure bill, and I mentioned a project that we did also launch at the Conservation Banquet on Friday night, which was a four and a half minute video that is a that is our why. It's what it's what the Mule Deer Foundation is about, where we came from, our roots with our volunteers and our chapters, the movement into some of these habitat restoration and conservation projects and the work that we're doing and how we have this great opportunity for growth. The video is called Ensuring the Future and um, probably painfully for me and maybe so for those who are listening, uh, somehow I managed to get roped into being the voice of that. Uh, was not my plan by any stretch of the imagination, but um, but but it ended up turning out really well. Our, our partners at Weatherby did a tremendous, tremendous job producing that video. Um, I spent a lot of time working with them over a, a month and a half, and I think the end result was pretty positive. And I, and I think it's getting good reviews. And JJ, it's up on our website, right? Yeah, it's on our website. It's also on our YouTube channel. So it's uh, you know readily available. I've also uploaded it. Uh, it is available on Instagram uh, in a shorter format as well. Yeah, it's, it, it turned out to be a, a great project. And, and again, I think, um, I think there's a lot of people who know and have heard of the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, I think our, our reach is growing over the years. But I think that this video tries to help get that information across in a very understandable and short that was the that was the idea right joel that was your vision when we we decided about we were doing this yeah it it was uh video can be a really effective tool to tell the story as we all know uh and i think we really hit the mark on this to talk about as you said jody where we came from the the impact that our volunteers have had over the years but also kind of set the table for this being the foundation for the MDF moving forward. And as I said earlier, when we were talking about the Mule Deer Summit, we've got to work in a manner and at a scale that we've never really thought about before. And hopefully this video helps to set the table for how we're going to go about doing that and the urgency uh, that is there for us to really get started on that now. So Jody, I had to tell you a little uh, something about this. My wife was walking by, as I was reviewing one of the, I forget which version it was. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know, the final product goes through many iterations before yes. uh, the one goes out. So we were screening them and uh, my wife had come through my office and started looking over my shoulder. And when it was done, she said, hell yeah, that's inspiring. Led, what do I do? How do I get involved? And I think that's sort of what we were trying to get out of it is, a, it's been great for those who have been involved, stay involved, and are doing great work. But it also is an appeal to those who may have been sitting on the sideline waiting to get involved for whatever reason. To get involved with the MDF or a group like us, go do great things for wildlife uh, with your time, with your energy, with your money. And we're all going to make that difference bigger Um and, and hopefully turn that curve up and 
and address some of the looming issues out there. So I, I thought it hit exactly what we set out to do. I, I think it for the for me, it was inspiring to see the habitat work. And although we, we do often show the harvest side of things, it wasn't heavily on the harvest. And, and I like that, but I'm a field biologist, you know, at, at heart and, you know, a habitat guy. So um, I'm looking forward to what it's going to allow us to do with more engagement, more efforts. And, and I can tell you, you know, we have our federal partners meeting during Expo. And this was the best attended one out of this, I think, five years we've done it. Um, we had 25 people in the room physically and another 58, I think, on the phone. And, and every one of those people that took time out of their day to attend, um, except for the staff that we told you have to be there, uh, you know, were there because they, they, they would have been there anyway, yeah, because they want to partner with us. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, I'm hoping next year it's 200 people because that means we're going to have more partnerships. More partnerships means we're going to be doing more on the ground. And we're going to be making a difference at that scale that Joel talks about. Absolutely. You know, that video was, um, it, 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 there was definitely lift, but we, we, we have known and have wanted to, to have a video like that. More importantly, it's, it's just the start. And one of the things that we're talking about and, and plan to do, and, and, and it, you know, they each take a lot of time and, and video capture and then the production side of it as well as interviews and things, but we are going to use that as a, uh, as a, a model for how we tell what we mean when we talk about forest restoration. What, why, why is that important? When and as some people say, you know, it looks worse before it looks better because sometimes when you're in the middle of a project, it doesn't look great. But this will explain why it's beneficial for the forest, why it's beneficial for the communities around it, why it's beneficial for wildlife, mule deer, black-tailed deer, uh, in particular from our perspective. But that obviously has an effect on on hundreds of other species as well. So, so th that is going to be something we'll be moving forward with, where we'll be able to spotlight our projects more broadly uh, and be more specific about why why, how, how, what makes a wildlife friendly fence? You described a few of the things we're going to be able to show that. So those are projects that we have in the future. And some of this is going in and related to a lot of the digital media work that, that you're doing, JJ. So tell us a little bit about what you've been working on, how this all fits in and, and what you're hearing and what you're seeing on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I came into the Mule Deer Foundation at an incredibly awkward time to be an outreach guy. I, uh, I started just uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, just before the pandemic started. Uh, and it's pretty tough to do outreach when you can't go do in-person events. You can't be in the field. You, you know, you can't have personal contact. And I um, want to I want to clarify on that as well, because outreach can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I mean, communications and, and, and marketing can sometimes be termed as outreach. What we meant for your outreach position was helping with things like the Muley events, um, helping to increase participation in hunting through recruitment, retention and reactivation. That was that was the foundation of the position at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one-on-one -on -one wasn't easy when. <laughs> yeah, it, it got really tough to do. And, but uh, it also gave us a, an inflection point to stop and look at organizationally at, you know, what, what can we be doing better? And, you know, one of the areas that we quickly identified as, as a team was really, you know, a better focus on social media, how we utilize it, um, how much, how frequently we utilize it, you know, and, and what the image and message of our organization uh, that we're going to put forth. And really, I think the, you know, ensuring the future video is, just kind of one small piece in that that really showcases that that increase in you know digital content uh, video content short engaging films uh, to, to get folks in not everybody's got a half hour to sit down and, and watch you know a, a 
Project Mule Deer full length documentary. But, you know, if we can encapsulate a, a very cohesive message in, you know, three to five minutes, it's, it's amazing how effective that is as a communication tool to reach new people. So, JJ, how has our reach grown? What, what have you seen? Yeah, uh, you know. Prior to me coming on, our biggest focus was really just utilization of the Facebook platform, and and that was it. Um, I came in and and being a little bit uh, on the early years of Facebook, but uh, you know, being generationally involved with Instagram, saw that the that was a medium that we needed to grow in. Um, since I took over those uh, accounts and really got them rolling, I think we were at you know eighteen thousand followers, give or take, on Instagram. Right now, we're just a tick under thirty-three thousand followers, with steady growth day in and day out on those accounts. Uh, and and so that's it's really awesome to see that, and it's really cool because the demographically, it just reaches a different audience. Where Facebook is really reaching folks that are you know thirty-five plus. Instagram's really you know, working to get us into the 18 to, to 34 range. And, you know, we're already having discussions now, uh, taking a look at what's next as well, because, you know, is TikTok going to be viable as a, as an outlet for the future? <laughs> or, you know, what's the next social media platform? I already missed the that's... TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the big deal is just being aware of, you know, our demographics are going to change as, as folks are aging out. Uh, it, it, some of those platforms become less viable and less relevant. And we want to make sure and, and be aware of that cognizant of that and make sure that we're appealing to not just a, you know, 35 or 45 or 55 plus audience. You know, we are a family friendly organization. We're, we're an organization where folks can feel comfortable coming to a banquet and bringing their kids, coming out to a volunteer opportunity, bringing the kids, getting them involved, getting hands in the dirt. Um, you know, so there, there's just so much opportunity by utilization of social media for us. And so primarily, you know, on outreach, really, that's what I've been working on for the last two years. Well, you know, JJ, you and I through the through the last couple of years have had some interesting conversations where I just expect folks to understand why we do something and where we do it as a biologist would. And, you know, there there are as we know, that can cause some real issues. And, you know, throw my 16 years as a Fed in there. So bring in all the acronyms and everything else. And it it really makes you think about you need to think about your audience and how you're, you know, when we talk about post-fire restoration, well, yeah, duh, we know what that means because those of us that have done it, but but how is someone that's going to be following us on the social media going to be able to understand that in the, what, five to seven seconds that something gets a look at? Um, you know, it really, I think it can help us tell our story better is basically where I'm going with that and reach reach audiences that I would never be able to reach without having someone like JJ on board. Well, and, you know, I mean, I understand from our perspective, you know, we are the Mule Deer Foundation, but the reality is the projects that we're doing, our hands in the ground, our dirt work really benefits a myriad of other species and, and really it's an opportunity for us to reach out to those folks and get them involved. Uh, for somebody who's a hardcore upland hunter, for us to just sit and talk about sage land restoration and how critical that is to sage grouse, that's a huge talking point. And if we're not reaching out to those folks and creating content that is relevant to them, there's no chance that they're going to try and get involved with what we're doing as an organization. So we not only obviously have in, increased our visibility on the national kind of the headquarters, the Mule Deer Foundation sites, but all of the states now also are increasingly growing their state sites as well. Um, through the regional directors, there's they're going to be posting information about volunteer efforts. There's going to be that's where you're going to find about a upcoming banquet or Gunapalooza. Um, 
earlier, I mentioned all of the state specific projects that uh, we funded and how we have that documented out. Those state boards, state project boards, those are available on their their state social media pages. Tell us a little bit about what uh, it, it, it behooves somebody to be on their own states as well as maybe neighboring states and, of course, the national, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the big problems we have from a national organization is we wanted to feature every single project, every single thing we were involved with on that national feed. And it quickly became really cluttered and it was hard to find really big picture information about what we were doing as an organization. So really by focusing on that state level and uh, and, and allowing the regional directors and even high level volunteers that are involved in within those states um, to be more topical to their local, what's going on with their local local fishing game agency meetings and, and topics like those. Um, it, it's, it's incredibly uh, beneficial. Right now, every state has a Facebook account. If you're not sure how to find it, you know, just search Mule Deer Foundation and insert your state. If we've got active chapters, there's, there's a page out there that exists that's going to carry that. And increasingly, uh, we're getting more and more uh, pages added on, on the Instagram side as well. So again, just trying to, to expand that demographic reach on our side to, to reach a bigger audience. Well, and anybody who knows social media and obviously anybody who's personally involved in it and any parent with a child who's involved in it knows what a time suck it can be. We all spend a lot of time on there. So it is, there's a lot of work to kind of keep the material green, to keep people, keep engaged in conversations, to, to keep people in, uh, engaged in the organization as a whole. It's a lot. Um, but we're doing our best with all of the other work that, uh, that the state, the regional directors and you, JJ, and others have to keep that information fresh, to get that in there, have the conversations, but also realizing we've got a lot of other stuff to do. If we're going to get those projects done on the ground, we need to not be doing hours and hours and hours on social media every day. Right. And I mean, from my perspective, it, it opens up a ton of volunteer opportunities for as well. You know, not everybody is going to be the person out there putting hands in the dirt. Um, you know, a lot of folks uh, that are out there with hands in the dirt that have kids that are social media savvy. And, and we have an opportunity to engage with those volunteers as well and say, hey, you know, take some content, capture some content from your perspective, because as we show up on these projects, each of us have a different viewpoint. And so it's good to get that outside perspective. So, you know, I definitely encourage for folks that are social media savvy, you know, approach your regional directors, chat with them about that, about how you can help on, you know, even content collection. Uh, the reality is, you know, I can't hop on a flight to every project uh, that's happening out in a field to go capture, you know, video and, and pictures. So the more more eyes and ears we have on the ground to help us out, uh, the better for as uh, as an organization. Now, Jody, we're running a little short on time here, but before we go, I wanna I want to shift and ask Joel and JJ some very specific things about 2022. Uh, JJ, I'm gonna start with you. Uh -oh. You and I have talked at times about doing more live events and possibly question and answer and other things. What are you looking at? You know, where are we going with, with some of the technology and the ability to do remotes uh, through whatever platform? Yeah, uh, we can definitely do quite a bit on there. We'd like to develop that out a little bit further. One of the biggest problems we end up with is it's tough to do like live segments for us uh, in the field for the vast majority of our projects, right? When you're you know, halfway up the mountain, 50 miles from town, there's just no cell service to do that. So, you know, there's some some bandwidth issues that we have to work through on that, but we can definitely take video on that. I know I worked a lot with Jesse Shallow up on the uh, projects up there in Idaho last year and got some short videos. So 
you know, if folks have questions specifically, they're looking for us to answer them. I, I encourage shoot us, shoot us a message on either Facebook or Instagram. And, uh, you know, I'll catalog those and start writing those down to make sure that the next time I have one of the biologists, I can, you know, grab them by the ear and force them to stand in front of the camera and be awkward for me. Yeah. And we, we also talked, maybe chat with an expert, bringing in one of our partners that's an expert and I think the thing there is is making sure folks know about it and actually get online and, and ask questions. It's pretty, pretty lonely when you're there by yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely things that we're looking for, you know, and, and again, if folks have feedback, we always encourage, encourage that. Uh, you can shoot it to us, ask uh, mdf at muledeer.org. You can hear us at uh, podcast at muledeer.org. So we're really, you know, go to great lengths to make sure that we're open and accessible to folks to send us inquiries. We 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 want to know the questions you have because if if we're not aware of that, we're missing out on a lot of educational opportunity. Right. Um, look forward to it, JJ. Uh, Joel, same question to you. What what are, what are you going to be directing the organization to do? And I guess a lot of my work plan will be. <laughs> around however you Wait a second. So. Hey, Steve, we're three months in. Hopefully you have yeah. that work plan. <laughs> well, we put up some big numbers last year, Steve. We need to uh, continue to work towards growing that for starters. Um, and I know that you and your staff are working hard on putting the projects out on the ground. You know, this discussion that we've had about social media and uh, our communications efforts, I think are important. I still get asked often, tell me more about MDF. I've never really heard of you. And that's something that, that we need to fix. We need to continue to, to tell our story better to those people that haven't been engaged with MDF for a long time. We've done a great job of revamping the magazine. We've upgraded the website in the last year and the strides that JJ's made on social media over the last 12 to 18 months have been tremendous, but it's really, I think it's just the start. So we've got to continue to to tell our story better. We need to continue to engage our volunteers, engage more volunteers in our efforts. Um, and we've got to continue to grow our membership. We're an organization that depends on on members, not only for financial support, but for spreading the word about the work that we do. I want to look for more opportunities to get volunteers engaged beyond just putting on a, a banquet and raising that money, which is essential, but opportunities to get them out there in the field and, and get their hands in the dirt and be involved in that way or in our three efforts. Or We need to, to come to those people that want to be involved with us and find a venue for them to engage with us in a way that'll make them productive and feel like they're making a difference. Yeah, and, and from the conservation side, Joel, you and I have talked about this just recently, you know, giving some more attention to black-tailed deer is exciting for me. Uh, and an area that we, you would think we have given more attention to, but because we focus so much on the, the public lands, is, is um, how can we help private landowners right. do what they need to do on their lands? And, and I know those are two things that we're in the process of planning some stuff right now, but I'm really excited because we have a lot of room to make a difference there. We do. We do. And um, integrating the private land work is essential. The, the deer don't stop at a boundary. Uh, they don't recognize that. We don't need to recognize, we don't need to artificially recognize that when we're putting work on the ground, we've got to work across that landscape. And, and Steve, I think you're right. Uh, 
with the blacktail deer, uh, it is an area that I think is definitely ripe for the MDF to get more involved. It's been part of our mission statement since day one in uh, 1988. Uh, but it it there's challenges, as you and I both know, in getting that work done. But I do think the interest is there and the time is right. And I'd tell this group that's listening to stay tuned for more news on that in the upcoming months. Yeah, you know, um, if we can double in a couple of years, double the amount of acres that are conserved. I mean, that's where I'm going. We also are, you know, continue going to be going to new areas. I know that we've talked about maybe getting in some of the non-mule deer, black-tailed deer states with with volunteers and events. And, and you know, you look at some other groups, they do really well in those states. And so that's exciting because that money then uh, that's raised for projects can be applied where they want it to go and where we need it to go. That's right. So it sounds to me like we've covered a whole lot of ground today uh, and that I know our normal commute uh, is getting longer due to traffic. So therefore, we might be fitting into a normal commuting time period with our podcast times like we were always trying to do. Uh, but uh, but I do think our time is, is up now. So Joel, JJ, thank you so much for joining us and talking Mule Deer today. Until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and please go to our website and watch our Ensuring uh, the Future video. And thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.